welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First-time listeners, welcome. Thanks for finding the show. Hope you will enjoy uh, not only this episode, but hopefully you'll go back in the archives, listen to the previous episodes. And of course, returning listeners, always, always grateful for your continued support. Uh, thanks for everybody who has reached out. I think I've responded to some, maybe some I haven't responded to yet. I will make sure to do that. Um, I'm always happy to get uh, correspondence, even when it's negative. So uh, thank you so much for that and for your continued support, not only for this show, but especially for Counterpunch generally. I, I always make this plug at the beginning of the show, and I, I, I do that because I think that Counterpunch is critical. Uh, I really appreciate that uh, it is a space on the left in the alternative media that can give voice and, and, and give a platform to perspectives that are either ignored by the mainstream corporate media or that are distorted by that same media. And I think the Counterpunch serves a valuable function in that regard. So if you agree, then please consider getting a subscription to the magazine. It's a great way to support the show and also to support Counterpunch as a project uh, and also getting something out of it. I really appreciate a print magazine, if, you know, in particular, given the times that we're living in and the death of print media. So uh, please do consider that. You can also make a donation through the PayPal button uh, on the website. You can call the number. You can uh, find other ways to do it. So please consider it. All right. And also just another plug for my other work. Uh, you can find my other podcasts, audio commentaries, essays, and a whole lot more art criticism, poetry. Uh, that's all on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. If you're interested in that sort of stuff, please do check that out. So thanks for that. With all of that shameless promotion out of the way, let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to welcome Ronnie Barkon onto the show. Uh, Ronnie is a, in my opinion, an incredibly important uh, Israeli activist to be following. He is a co-founder of Boycott from Within, which is a group of Israeli citizens and residents supporting the Palestinian call for BDS, that's Boycott Divestment Sanctions from Israel. Uh, he is a very important voice. You can follow that movement and his work at boycottisrael.info, as well as on Twitter at Ronnie underscore Barkon and on Facebook. So without further ado, Ronnie Barkon, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hi, Eric. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, before we get into all of the really heavy and weighty subjects around Palestine and around the struggle uh, of the Palestinian people and the struggle against uh, Israeli colonialism, apartheid, etc., I want to give a sense of you and your background and how you came to do this work. So what brought you to being this dissident that you are and this activist against uh, Israeli apartheid and Israeli oppression of the Palestinian? Palestinians. Tell us a little bit about your life and your experiences that brought you to this point. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, I grew up like most Israelis, um, uh, going through the indoctrination system, uh, going through like where we're being taught to be soldiers from kindergarten, literally from kindergarten. Uh, and there is a straight path leading to the army. And um, for most Israelis, um, to be an Israeli equals being a soldier. So later on, when I decided to refuse serving in the army, uh, you know, and I approached other people saying, uh, you know, that I'm a conscientious objector, then usually one of the first responses that I would hear uh, in, um, when I say that I refuse to serve in the army is, uh, so why do you live here? Because if you don't serve in the army, you basically, according to most uh, Israeli perspectives, uh, you don't really earn the right to live there. So, so there's this already this thing that is tied in very strongly from 
uh, very early on. Uh, and then later on, you know, I grew up in a, a relatively trouble-free upper middle class area of Israel or what we call Palestine 48. Um, and, and I would say that I didn't have any political upbringing. Quite the contrary. I had a, a totally apolitical upbringing. Luckily, I did have uh, quite a bit of leeway in order to uh, choose my path and uh, my convictions. But uh, there was nowhere, no one around actually to, to, you know, to guide me in the political perspective. So I had to do that for myself. Um, now, I mentioned that I, I went through the whole indoctrination system and it's quite easy to, uh, to grow up as an Israeli and to blindly believe uh, that the Israeli defense forces have anything to do with defense to believe uh, in this uh, brainwashing that exists throughout childhood, a soft type of brainwashing, but very effective, uh, that, you know, Israel extends its hand for peace and it is surrounded by enemies and all of those, uh, whereas the reality is quite on the contrary. Uh, especially for those who grow in what we regard as liberal Zionist uh, households, those who would, you know, uh, otherwise consider themselves as liberal and progressive, even humanists, and at the same time, uh, clinging on very strongly to their Zionist perspective. And, and it's quite amazing that people can carry on living their lives like that without actually realizing how brainwashed and how that totally doesn't have any meaning whatsoever. I mean, and, and so basically this long introduction comes to to say that the way I see the situation in Israel-Palestine is that when I talk to you, someone from abroad, I could stick to the facts and, and, and you know, explain the whole situation about settled colonialism and apartheid and all the horrible crimes that Israel is, is responsible for, for at least the past seven decades. But when we discuss, when I discuss with Israelis, uh, that's a whole different issue because it's never about the facts. There is a whole psychological uh, issue that has to be dealt with, and and especially so when we're talking about the so-called liberals, uh, because they, in order to be liberal and Zionist at the same time, they not only lie to the rest of the world, they have to lie to themselves every moment of every day in order to, to maintain this very conflicting, uh, illogical type of, uh, yeah, view about life. So, so I, I think that for any Israeli dissident, as you uh, mentioned before, and I proudly uh, refer to myself as such, anyone who, who basically uh, overcame Zionism, sobered up from Zionism, it is really a sobering up process that needs to take place. Now, for some people, it is more difficult for others uh, like me, who I was quite lucky in that it was quite an easy process, but, but it does mean a psychological a process and a realization, like there needs to be some eureka moment, some some understanding that actually nothing that I was told about where I was living is true. All of it is wrong. All of it is convoluted. And then, you know, once once it is possible to break away from whatever brainwashing exists, then, you know, the rest the rest of the story I think is quite easy to understand. But first, there is this mental barrier that has to be overcome. 
I think that's a great way of putting it, and uh, I think that's a valuable insight, especially for people who uh, either live outside of Israel or even people who are uh, not Jews, because I think that, as you were alluding to, there is an element of brainwashing that exists even among the Jewish diaspora, and that's actually one of the processes, in my opinion, that the Israelis, that the Israeli government, the Israeli state is concerned about this growing trend, particularly among uh, younger American Jews, especially to reject a lot of these uh, preconceived notions about Israel, about Israeli, uh, you know, or the Jewish claims to Palestine and the dehumanization of Palestinians and so forth. So that even even some of the entrenched liberal Zionism uh, may seem to be changing as uh, conditions around us change. Yes, absolutely. And that is a very reassuring sign, actually. Uh, uh, the foothold of liberal Zionism, uh, which is a totally Orwellian discourse that claims, as I said, that there is such form of liberal Zionism, liberal supremacy, that, that, uh, you, that you could at the same time um, believe in uh, basically racial or ethnic purity and exclusive and to be... Uh, to believe in uh, some people being better than others based on their DNA or ethnicity and so on, to vehemently oppose, uh, you know, basic democratic values like equality and so on, and at the same time, uh, also consider yourself liberal, you know, and, and and that obviously doesn't doesn't go well together. So so what is happening uh, these days is the erosion of this uh, narrative that has been. Uh, leading the discourse in the media that has been leading the discourse in politics and so on for the past seven decades around Israel-Palestine. Uh, and that is a very reassuring sign. And one, one of these signs is clearly the shift that we see in the U.S. with uh, American Jews, um, those who grew up in uh, usually Zionist households, uh, who learned to basically blindly support the state of Israel. And uh, at some point... Um, they have, uh, again, came to a, re a realization that actually Israel today, at least, maybe they have a different perception of what Israel used to be in the past, based on that propaganda that I mentioned before, but, but they realized that at least the Israel of today doesn't live up to, doesn't, doesn't go well uh, with their liberal values about other things. And, and, and we see uh, in the polls a very clear uh, distancing of uh, American Jewry from uh, from Israel, or at least from from blindly supporting the state of Israel. Luckily, uh, I'm very happy to say that there is also a, a very impressive growth uh, in those who have totally overcame Zionism and uh, now realize that you know the very elementary thing that we should do as human beings, let alone those that the state of Israel claims to speak on our behalf, is to support Palestinian rights and uh, doing so by uh, strictly supporting uh, or wholeheartedly supporting uh, the Palestinian-led BDS campaign, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions campaign against Israel. And I, I'm referring especially in the U.S. context uh, to a group called Jewish Boys for Peace, which grew tremendously over the past years. Um, and you can see, you can tell that uh, it has way more presence online, you know, not necessarily uh, uh, as much funding as, as uh, APAC and J Street and so on, but it has way more online presence. And uh, if you look at its membership, if you look at its, um, you know, page likes and so on, which, whichever, whichever, right there, 
you choose to look at, you will see that that they have they are uh, being much more vocal, uh, and and uh, this is a very reassuring sign that this is also happening even in the U.S. Um, yeah. That that uh, those those yeah those who uh, grew up to think one way um, are over the past decade or so uh, have transitioned uh, have, have had a change of heart about what they were told about Israel and are realizing for themselves what this is really all about. Indeed, I think that's a very important point as well. And uh, I was hoping that we would get in depth on this subject a little bit later. But now that it's open, let's discuss it further, because I think that as you as you were saying, you know, on the one hand, there is seemingly at least among American Jews, particularly of the millennial generation, younger Jews, say under 40, uh, there is this uh, at least growing consciousness, if not uh, fully anti-Zionist consciousness, because I think that's going too far, but certainly a growing awareness of what Israel has come to represent, what Israeli policies are today, and so forth. And I wonder, could you, could you, since you mentioned liberal Zionism and liberal delusions about Zionism, the counterpoint to that that I'd like you to talk about is the Zionist embrace, particularly among the far right and of the right wing government in Israel, of the far right in the West, of, of white supremacies, white nationalists and so forth, whether it's of the uh, standard Trumpian variety or even of the more extreme variety that you see in Europe and elsewhere. Part of that seems to be what's driving some of the revulsion against Israel from liberal perspective, but also some of the growing support of Israel from some of these far-right elements. So can you talk about the counterpoint mm -hmm. of Israel's embrace of the far-right? Yes. Um, first of all, we have to remember that Zionism, and now, now there's no one definition for Zionism. Uh, I could give my own definition if that helps. But, um, uh, but, but what is clear is that Zionism uh, was a reactionary response to real anti-Semitism that existed in Europe at the time. Uh, but unfortunately, the Zionists have fully adopted the anti-Semitic discourse, uh, only with different conclusions, with uh, you know, with with a different end goal. So uh, from early on, there was there were ties. They, the Zionists realized that actually their allies uh, also include those who were uh, clearly anti-Semitic, including, for example, uh, Lord Balfour. I mean, who who was a clear anti-Semite and who you know. Who we just, uh, you know, celebrated or marked uh, 120 years to the Balfour Declaration. So, um, uh, sorry, 100, 100 years to the Balfour Declaration, 120 years to the First Zionist Congress. Um, so, uh, when 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 we discuss uh, those who um, support uh, the Zionist project back in the day, but also today, we have to remember that, uh, you know, there are, uh, at the very least, uh, uh, those different interests that, that, you know, merge, I mean, the, the shared interests between the Zionists and those who are clearly uh, racist and anti-Semitic. You can, you can look at it in different ways um, to, to resolve the, what is regarded as, quote-unquote, the Jewish problem, uh, or to simply uh, say that uh, we we want to have a proxy state uh, that that basically does the bid for us in uh, the Middle East. Uh, you know, um, uh, there are different uh, arguments for for why the same type of thinking that uh, that the Zionists try to respond to was actually uh, perpetuated later on. Now, 
we have to remember that at the same time, uh, there were Jews who were clearly opposed to Zionism. There are those who are ultra-Orthodox. Uh, and at the time, um, until roughly World War II, the ultra-Orthodox were not supportive of Zionism. Zionism was uh, a secular movement uh, that uh, actually treated the ultra-Orthodox uh, Jews of Europe with the greatest contempt, with the, in the most racist way. Um, they, the same anti-Semitic tropes, um, you know, saying that the, these ultra-Orthodox are carrying disease and that they are primitive and backwards and so on. Uh, and and uh, Zionism basically uh, was a movement of secular Jews who who wanted to establish uh, a national uh, with with some national agenda, nationalistic agenda. But it wasn't only about that. As I said, because it was a response to anti-Semitism, saying that somehow Jews are different. Uh, the, the Zionists adopted that view that they are different and therefore they cannot be part of the rest of society. So, so because we are different, because uh, people don't like us, we need to have our different special place for us and only for us. And this type of thinking that somehow um, there is a need for an, an exclusivist place an exclusive place that is for us and only for us is uh, started very early on in Zionism and is clearly uh, the main element in the establishment of the Zionist state, the state of Israel. It is not only a settler colonial project. It's not only about coming and taking over the land, uh, usurping the land and uh, um, using and abusing uh, the human resources uh, and so on. But also inherent to the Zionist thinking, certainly in the establishment of the state of Israel, is the notion that this place is ours and only ours. And anyone who, who doesn't belong to our select ethnic group doesn't belong here at all. So from the very first moment, uh, this was the notion of, of the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, and... I would argue that what happened is that the, the greatest uh, Palestinian tragedy is not that in 1947 uh, uh, the UN uh, decided to partition the land into two parts uh, in a very unequal way, uh, in an unfair uh, way, uh, giving more than half of the land to less than half of the population. Uh, the Jews uh, living there at the time uh, only had about less than 10% of the land and so on. And they were far less than half of the population. Anyway, that was a very unfair decision, the partition plan by the UN. But that in itself is not uh, what can be regarded as the Palestinian tragedy, because that was also the partition plan per se was never implemented. What was implemented is something very different, which is basically that those who founded that state, the Zionist state, they wanted to establish what they call a Jewish and democratic state. Now, that's not a logical term. Either you have... A democracy or you don't have a democracy. Either you have equality or you don't have equality. But what it meant for them then and what it means to them to this day is that if we are the majority, if we have our kind of population, then we can claim that we are a democracy. But first and foremost, we need to have our kind of people. And the very first thing that needed to happen in order to establish this so-called Jewish and democratic state is to evict the land of its indigenous people, to create a Jewish majority by force. The very next thing that they did is to establish a whole legal system 
uh, that will make sure that those who have been expelled will never be allowed to come back, and those who remain, because not everyone was expelled, uh, will be denied uh, equal standing, equal rights. And this is how the State of Israel was founded. Now, since then, until quite recently, this so-called Jewish democratic discourse um, held quite well. I mean, uh, was was it, it, it was quite uh, successful in, in convincing the world that, that there is something legitimate in what I just mentioned a moment ago, that it is okay to, uh, to live there at the expense of the others for our cherished uh, supremacist, uh, you know, state or ethnic, uh, you know, ethnic state. Now, uh, over the past couple of decades, there is uh, a shift, as you alluded to, to, to the right. I mean, there is a shift to what I would regard as the more um, honest of the Zionists, which um, say, yes, this is ours and only ours, and we are not so concerned about that liberal discourse. I mean, between the Jewish and democratic parts, we want the Jewish part. We don't care so much about the democratic. So they are far less concerned about playing the democratic, the, the democratic game or, or, you know, doing this charade. And, and the more that the right wing is in power, and uh, especially the acting you know, administration, the more we see how Israel uh, exposes itself uh, or exposes its true face uh, that, no, they are not really concerned about democratic values at all. Actually, they were never concerned about democratic values, but they did try to come across as ones. They're not even trying. Now, especially with the new law that was just legislated, they are saying very clearly, no, we are first and foremost an exclusivist idea. You know, this project is for one select group of people. This is the most important thing for us. You know, if there are other people, if we didn't manage to expel them, you know, maybe we will let them stay under our conditions as subjugated people. You know, if they abide by our rules, we will be, uh, you know, we we will be nice enough to not uh, expel them, but but under our terms. Uh, you, and, and this is what we are seeing. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, you you alluded you alluded to it, so I think it's it's probably appropriate for us to discuss it in detail. This uh, the recent law that was passed, the so-called nationality law. Um, before we go to the break, we let's let's break down what that is. I mean, there's so many different aspects to it, and 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 many ramifications and repercussions. But I want to get a clear understanding from you and an analysis from you of this law. What does it actually do? What does it actually legislate and institute? Institutionalize, and to what extent is this uh, different from the kind of institutional discrimination uh, that we've seen in Israel for decades leading up to this point? What's changed? So uh, the Jewish nation state law um, is uh, what is, is regarded as a basic law, which is akin to a constitution. Israel doesn't have a constitution on purpose. It cannot have a constitution. And I will explain why in a moment. But a basic law needs a, um, a vast majority to to amend it, to change that. And that basic law uh, says that uh, there's there's different um, uh, um, chapters there, but uh, basically uh, 
part of it is about uh, uh, reducing the status of Arabic as a formal language to um, changing its status to a, a language a, a language with a special sta- special status but not an official state language uh, there's other things about uh, the ability to establish um, Jewish uh, only settlements uh, within Israel proper um, so so that is obviously quite a racist uh, article there in the in the law but I would argue that other than that the law doesn't change much it doesn't it, there is nothing really uh, so significant about the law other than one thing other than one uh, element which says that only the Jewish people have national rights in that land and in other words what it says is that and, and it, it, it elaborates it says all all uh, citizens will have citizenship rights but there is only one group that will have national rights and those are the Jewish people now that is what the law is really about it doesn't change anything about the situation of Israel in its current format what it changes is what can possibly happen in the future if up until now Israel was claiming to be a Jewish and democratic state therefore the leading uh, force basically in running the state is maintaining this cherished Jewish majority at any cost and we know for example that the secret secret security service the Shin Bet stated in court in the past that they are monitoring anyone who uh, works, uh, who, who opposes the Jewish character of the state, even if they do it legally. So basically anyone promoting quality, anyone promoting democracy is regarded by the security service of the state as some sort of a security threat, which, you know, uh, is, it is worthy to monitor some people. So, so we know that, you know, this was happening all along. But Israel is still was still playing this democratic game. What the law says now is, well, actually, about certain rights, we don't care about the view of the majority. What we care about is only the view of the Jewish people. And we have to understand how the Israel legal system is built, actually. It was built from the grounds up as an apartheid state. From the very beginning, there is there was a distinction between what is regarded as citizenship rights and national rights. In other languages, people don't really understand the, the difference because we use it interchangeably, citizenship and nationality. But in the Israeli legal system, there is a, a huge difference. I am an Israeli citizen, but I do not have an Israeli nationality because there is no such thing. Um, my nationality, according to the state of Israel, is Jewish. My neighbor living in Israel, who is also an Israeli citizen and who is not among the privileged group, they would have another uh, nationality. They could have an Arab nationality, for example, or Druze or Circassian, or basically any of the over 130 different nationalities that the Ministry of Interior uh, recognizes, but there is one nationality that it clearly does not recognize, it vehemently refuses to recognize that, and that is an Israeli nationality. And this was also taken to the Supreme Court a couple of times, and the court said very clearly that acknowledging an Israeli nationality in Israel would undermine the very character of the state of Israel. 
And that is a very true statement coming from that horrible court, which is, I would argue, the main vehicle of apartheid, because acknowledging the same nationality for all the citizens of the state would, at least uh, on paper, uh, establish some basis for equality among the different the citizens of that state. But that is not at all what the state of Israel is about. This is why we have the differentiation, the differentiation between citizenship and Israeli citizenship, which all the citizens have. But then, in order to differentiate between the subjugated second-class citizens and those who are among the privileged group, we also have another category, which is nationality. And there are many laws. There are three laws that are explicitly racist that say if one is of Jewish nationality, then they get certain rights. Uh, and to this day, we have over 50 or possibly almost uh, over 70 laws that depend on these former laws. And, and they are basically discriminatory laws between the citizens of that state. And they apply to, to many aspects of life. So basically, uh, we have, there is no, uh, as you know, there is no one state solution, but there is a one state condition in Israel-Palestine, where Israel controls or the Zionist state, uh, the regime controls the entire land, uh, but in a very unequal way. And, or, or rather than saying that there is a one state condition, I would say that there is a multiverse of states on that land, depending on your geography and nationality and ethnicity and on and on. So, so on that, on the very, on the same spot of land, Different laws apply to different people based on their, mostly based on their ethnicity. This is how the, the state of Israel, uh, you know, runs, uh, uh, what, you know, its whole operation. And what the new law says is basically we have to change that or uh, in the future we will not care so much about uh the, the view of the majority, we, we, we enshrine that uh, in law that, that only that select group will have the national rights, regardless of the number in society. So what it says is actually it doesn't change anything about the current practice, but it does change things for the future, because if Israel chooses tomorrow to annex Area C or to annex the, the whole of the West Bank, they could in theory do that and possibly even give citizenship to those people uh, that you know that are currently under military occupation, and still, uh, that would not uh, undermine uh, the so-called demographic demographic threat, because there would wouldn't be any more a need to discuss uh, this demographic discourse anymore. It's it is enshrined in the law that that only the select group have the important rights, the national rights. That's such an important analysis and the distinction that you made between citizenship and nationality. I think that that is a point that needs to be made repeatedly and oftentimes I think overlooked or not known, especially by people observing the situation from outside. Well, we're well overdue for a break, so let's take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, we have a lot more to discuss the recent developments with Ahed Tamimi, what that means and what that means for the uh, internal Israeli discourse is a very interesting question to discuss. Uh, the current state of the BD movement and attempts to stifle and suppress it and a whole lot more. I'll continue the conversation with Ronnie Barkon here. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. So much more to discuss with Ronnie Barkon. His excellent, excellent insights and analysis. I highly recommend you follow Ronnie on Twitter at Ronnie underscore Barkon. That's R-O-N-N-I-E underscore B-A-R-K-A-N. Ronnie underscore Barkon. And you could also follow him on Facebook. And uh, make sure to visit the website regularly. That's boycottisrael.info. So, uh, Ronnie, we were discussing a lot of different issues. Uh, pretty in-depth, I have to say. Uh, in the first half of the conversation, but I do want to shift gears to some contemporary issues that are dominating headlines around uh, Palestine and the struggle for uh, Palestinian rights and Palestinian liberation. And I think right now, uh, the dominant story has to do with uh, this young woman, Ahed Tamimi, uh, and her recent release from uh, Israeli uh, custody. So if if you could just in a very you know brief summary uh, help us to understand uh, why this issue is important or what what happened and why Ahed Tamimi is such a uh, focal point of attention right now. But the real meat of the discussion that I want to get into from you is what impact does Ahed Tamimi and the narrative around her have on internal Israeli discourse? What are the people in the media saying? What's the right say? What do the liberal Zionists say? How has it impacted discussion in Israel? So Ahed, uh, she is uh, from the village of Nebisaleh, uh, which uh, is routinely, um, you know, in occupied in the occupied West Bank. Uh, they demonstrate weekly against uh, the settlements there and uh, the annexation of um, their water well and other uh, other uh, things, uh, you know, hardships living under occupation, and along with the solidarity. Uh, coming from people from abroad and a handful of Israelis, conscientious Israelis who join in in these demonstrations. Obviously, there is uh, also a large military presence because of that, uh, those demonstrations, and therefore even more military oppression and repression. So uh, I had, like most uh, people of the village, uh, have you know unfortunately gotten used to uh, these. Uh, this violence coming from uh, the Israeli army, uh, but uh, they also regularly, for example, uh, occupy um, the, their house or, or the area near their house, and that is what happened on that day when uh, soldiers came and uh, basically stood at the porch, like in front of the house, uh, and um, and she was trying to um, drive them away from there. What happened? Uh, Earlier is that they also shot her cousin in the face. Uh, he was badly injured, like he, he survived and uh, uh, is doing relatively well. Uh, but all of these things, um, you know, living in this unbearable situation where, you know, occupation doesn't really convey the entire story here. And occupation is not only the presence of the soldiers, it is in every moment of of these people's lives living under occupation. Um, in that situation, um, she did what she thought was best, and I think that uh, many people appreciated, which is to uh, strike the soldier, to to slap him, uh, uh, trying to drive him away from there, from her home, which he invaded. Uh, and doing that uh, also uh, basically stresses the importance of symbolism in our struggle. Because obviously, when the power balance was not in Ahed's favor, 
you know, this was a fully armed uh, and protected soldier with his, you know, other with other uh, Israeli terrorists around him, and so on. And and uh, and I had this little girl who stood up to that guy and and put herself at risk, of course. Uh, but since this was captured on video and distributed and so on. This this symbolic act actually changes the whole power balance, and this is what basically we are doing in general in activism, and especially in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian case, because obviously Israel has as much power as it wants. I mean, mil military power, it's the fourth largest nuclear superpower in the world. It has endless supply of, uh, you know, weapons. It has uh, a strong... Um, economy and again a whole lot of support from the US from US taxpayers um, also the EU is funding the occupation in its own way uh, or maintaining the occupation and at the same time that Israel has all of that and it has a strong political lobby and so on we have everything else on our side we have truth and justice and equality and and basically uh, you know we we don't have to hide uh, in the darkness, we we can we can do things publicly, and this is our greatest strength to to expose Israeli crimes and to to not fear doing that, even though there are consequences, and there were consequences for Ahed. She she spent quite a few months in jail. Her and her uh, mother, her other uh, family members are still in jail in prison. Uh, I won't go into the whole incarceration uh, in Israeli military prisons, which is a whole issue in itself, uh, because I don't think we have enough time for that. But but basically, uh, this this symbol, uh, which basically I became a symbol of the struggle, she became an icon, a Palestinian icon, uh, is probably what Israel fears of the most. We know this, for example, from the WikiLeaks documents uh, in the, what was it, the the embassy cables where Israel told the U.S. administration that we don't do Gandhi very well. There is no problem for Israel to quash armed resistance. They have, as I said, they have way more soldiers and guns and what have you. But but with regard to the nonviolent resistance or what what I would call the popular resistance, not necessarily nonviolent, but but the, actually the resistance coming from the people, um, that is something that that Israel has. A very hard time to handle because when people demand their rights and when they do it properly, uh, even a great superpower in a way like Israel has very little that it can do other than, you know, use more and more force. But brute force alone just doesn't cut it. it it's not good enough. I mean, it's obviously uh, uh, the situation is horrible and it may even get darker. It, it, may, it may even get worse in the next months or years. But at the same time, I am very optimistic because everything about the the discourse, everything about the standing of Israel in the world is changing. Israel is in a free fall. It is a criminal pariah state and it is in a free fall. Its status is plummeting. You know, in, in a in a UK poll from a couple of years ago when the when British uh, people had to um, choose the most and the least uh, favorable countries in the world, Israel came third to last. Uh, and it is not only happening in the uh, in the UK. Uh, there are 
very clear signs that whatever was quite successful for Israel for the past, let's say, six decades, does not work that very well over the, you know, the recent decade or so. And I would correlate that quite a bit with the BDS campaign. The BDS campaign and some other things that happened have managed to shed light on, on you know, the true nature of Israel and also to galvanize uh, that uh, struggle, that um, <coughs> basically um, that resistance of Palestinians who are who are uh, scattered around the world, who are like geographically separated and also uh, Israel was doing a very good job at divide and conquer so there's also that the political divide and conquer uh, and and with the BDS campaign that basically consolidates these three fundamental rights of the Palestinians into one consolidated demand uh, it manages to turn the whole discourse on its head and to and to focus on the real issues at hand I definitely and I definitely so I would use I'm sorry, I, yes. di I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I, I definitely agree about uh, BDS. I just want to hold off for a minute on talking and uh, about BDS because I want to finish the point about mm -hmm. uh, Ahed Tamimi and specifically uh, the question of the discourse that her release has inspired within the Israeli state, both in terms of uh, the political leadership, but I think in particular popular media and among uh, the Israeli citizenry. I I mean, how is the Tamimi episode being interpreted? How are they squaring the circle? How are they justifying and or criticizing both Israel and uh, the course that the Israeli state chose? I'm very interested from an insider perspective how it's being discussed. So as usual uh, with Zionists, I, I, I can differentiate and, and say that there are actually only two viewpoints here, only two Zionist views. There are what I regard as the honest Zionists, the, the right-wing Zionists, which are, uh, you know, racist and proud of it, which are the ones that I mentioned before, uh, the acting administration, the ones who say this is ours and only ours. And and in their view, Ahed uh, is a terrorist, she needs to be behind bars for life, or even worse, I mean, some actually uh, even ministers in the Israeli parliament have actually uh, stated far worse things than than only putting her behind bars I will not reiterate that right now um, but but she's regarded as a terrorist and 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 basically that um, you know for, for for basically for slapping a soldier in the face you know we have to put that in perspective uh, um, a fully armed soldier uh, and and uh, basically they don't think that she has any rights whatsoever. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we have the other types of Zionists, uh, which are the so-called liberal Zionists. And with them, it is a little different because obviously, um, you know, coming from this more liberal perspective, um, what do you do about that? Um, in that case, with some liberal Zionists, actually, I had uh, they they could they could not. Uh, you know, uh, basically justify what can be seen in the video. They could not justify uh, the incarceration of Ahed and so on. Uh, but at the same time, their discourse would only be limited to that horrible military occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So, so the way to to deal with that is to comp compartmentalize it, to say yes, um, you know, she 
maybe she do, shouldn't have uh, slapped the soldier, but, but you know, she, she is, after all, under occupation and so on. But that is because the situation there is so bad in the West Bank. At the same time, they would go above and beyond to justify uh, whatever is happening inside Israel proper. In whatever is happening in what they regard as, you know, the Israeli democracy. So can I just ask? A, can, I, can, can I just ask a clarifying question, Robbie? Be, yes. uh, Ronnie, because I'm I'm a little confused. Um, okay, so are you suggesting then that in the liberal Zionist viewpoint, what they're able to do is when you say compartmentalize? In my mind, what you're really saying is that they externalize the oppression. In other words, the oppression is happening in these two very discrete and specific places, the West Bank and in Gaza and everything. That, and what the Israelis are doing is bad and Israel needs to stop doing that. But they're unable to then broaden the understanding of the oppression to actually the broader Zionist project, the broader question of Israel and, and, and Palestine as a whole. I mean, is that what you're essentially arguing? Yes, correct. Now... It, it we would need to spend a little time to to explain, you know, the type of thinking of liberal Zionism. But basically, um, that liberal so-called liberal discourse that we see we read on the New York Times, every piece on Haaretz newspaper, for example, and so on. Basically, uh, this is a discourse uh, that is totally uh, based on lies, lies upon lies. It it starts off with assuming that. Um, Israel and Palestine are two separate entities, rather than Israel build, being established literally on top of Palestine at the expense of the Palestinian people. Israel and Palestine are the very same spot of land. You know, for, for liberal Zionists, there is Israel alongside Palestine. So, so there is the, the whatever is legitimate Israel that uh, would be supposedly democratic and so on. And then there is Palestine, which is currently being occupied. And that is what needs to be resolved. But 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 whatever is regarded as the Israel part, not the Palestine part, with that they have very little issues. So so first of all, the notion of what is Israel and Palestine. Then of course, where does the problem start? Which goes back to the same issue: Is it about the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza? Is it the occupation of '67, or is it? how the Zionist state was founded in 1948 at the expense of Palestinians by, the, you know, by means of ethnic cleansing and ethnic segregation and establishing an apartheid state back then in 48. Only later, only 19 years later, came a harsh military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, other things are obviously the notion of uh, Jewish and democratic that I mentioned before, that, you know, it doesn't really stand to logic, but but there is some you know, some effort to, to square the circle there. Uh, but but those people, they, they honestly believe that they live in a democracy, even in a vibrant democracy, and that the issue is only with the occupation of 67. So this is what I meant by compartmentalizing that whatever is happening there in the West Bank can be, can be understood while at the same time fully supporting the far greater possibly Israeli crimes, fully supporting the Israeli army because, you know, they all support the army. Uh, maybe, maybe saying that you know not everything that the Israeli army is doing in the occupied territories is wonderful, but but at the same time, fully supporting the army 
and so on. When when there was uh, the massacres uh, in Gaza in 2014 and in 2008, 2009, over 95% of Israelis, when we say Israelis, we never count those who are not Israeli Jews. This is unless explicitly stated. When we say Israelis, we only count 80% of the population. So 95% or more of Israelis supported the massacre in both massacres, uh, 2008 and 2014. Only Two or three percent uh, thought that Israel was using excessive force in Gaza at the time, while they were demolishing uh, mosques and uh, hospitals and so on, and, and uh, raising to the ground entire neighborhoods. So, so this is the type of thinking that's common to both, you know, among Israeli society. Uh, they can. Th- there is very little uh, criticism of the role of the army in general. There is very little criticism or no criticism at all of the inherent supremacist character of the state, as mentioned before. Uh, there is a very little criticism uh, of the issue of not the West Bank and Gaza, but what about the refugees, those who are absent from the land, and they are the majority of Palestinians. So, so when they talk about, for example, a Jewish majority, and, you know, any demographic discourse is a deeply racist discourse, but this is the discourse that is being, uh, that is carrying on, especially among those so-called liberals discussing demographics all the time. How many of us versus how many of them? It's very important to discuss that when you want to maintain a Jewish majority. So when they, you know, do this uh, math game, uh, they never count the refugees. At best... They will say, okay, there are six million Israeli Jews, and then there are six million non-Jews on that land, okay, which are some of them, 20% of the population of Israel are non-Jews, and then the rest in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. So now they will say something like, okay, Israel is reaching an apartheid cliff, because now we are arriving at a 50-50 mark, six million of those, six million of those. They never count the other six million who are in the diaspora, right? The refugees and they, in the diaspora, because they don't want to. They don't want to acknowledge the apartheid state that's been in existence for uh, many, many years. Now, the other, the other, exactly. the other thing that I just wanted to maybe just one, one thing about that. Oh, yeah, in the in, in in those liberals' views, they can maintain the notion that they live in a democracy as long as they are, you know, six million and one versus the other six million Palestinians on that land. Because in the Israeli context, the understanding of democracy is simply the rule of the majority. It doesn't matter what type of rule. There's absolutely nothing to do with, you know, the, the, this, the question of democratic values like equality or the rights of minorities or multiculturalism, because Israel is built, is established on the exact opposite values as those that I just mentioned. But as long as they manage to play the game, if they are a democracy, as long as they can somehow justify that it is, after all, the rule of the majority, then they're fine with that. So this is what I mean, that that you can compartmentalize and and kind of try to find a way to justify everything if you only look at a niche, if you only look at a segment rather than the whole picture. Absolutely. That's that's very well said. And I just wanted to make the point to kind of uh, uh, further support what you're saying, that it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you, if you have a different interpretation, but this liberal Zionism that you're talking about and, and, and some of the self-deception that really I think is inherent in liberal Zionism, I think this has real... Uh, 
expression that we've seen recently. For instance, when you see the op-eds in some of the liberal uh, Israeli papers like Haaretz and some of the others, uh, you see some of, well, I guess Haaretz is probably on its own, but that, that's a separate issue. Uh, in, in terms of the liberal uh, opinion pieces about the nationality law, one of the seemingly uh, underlying features or, or themes that ties them all together is a sense of embarrassment internationally, right? They don't want to be seen as so undemocratic. They don't want to be seen as fascistic. They don't want to be seen as part of an apartheid state rather than saying rather than saying, you know what, this is what we are. And thank God the world is finally seeing it. Exactly. This is why I'm saying that the right wing is much more honest, not decent, but honest about its racism. The liberal Zionists, every single one of them is actually far more racist than the right wing, but also much more dishonest because the reason that they need to have to establish a Palestinian state is exactly in order to separate from Palestinians because uh, they are obsessed with the notion of demographics all the time. And and just think that if this is the leading, this is the driving force for everything that people do, then then you know it it is it is a very very racist view. For example. Um, and I could give you many such examples. Uh, Peace Now, which is, again, supposedly a liberal, uh, a progressive organization, uh, they have uh, a campaign to separate uh, East Jerusalem uh, neighborhoods from what is regarded Greater Jerusalem, you know, from West to separate East and West Jerusalem, because those people living in East Jerusalem, and that's another issue, and I will not go into that right now, they are not citizens of the state, they are residents. Because at the time when Israel annexed East Jerusalem, they wanted to annex the land without, they didn't have that basic law that we talked about a moment ago. So they couldn't, they wanted to annex the land without its population. So they invented a new legal category for them and they made them those residents of East Jerusalem. They called them residents, permanent residents. Anyway, these people who are permanent residents, they uh, are not allowed to vote for the Israeli parliament, the apartheid parliament, but they can vote to the municipality. And those so-called liberal Zionist organizations are fearing that very soon in the next elections, uh, the, the, the number game will change. And for the first time, Palestinians in East Jerusalem would, God, you know, uh, forbid, uh, kind of uh, uh, be able to uh, to elect an Arab mayor to the city of Jerusalem. So there are actually two campaigns taking place, one by Peace Now, another is by a group called uh, Saving Jewish Jerusalem. And uh, they are the most racist campaigns you, you can imagine. They say things like, uh, uh, soon, God forbid, uh, the Mufti's grandson could be the mayor of Jerusalem. Or they regard the neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, at least one of their uh, spokespeople, who is uh, actually a former um, uh, senior minister in the government, um, uh, he regards the neighborhoods of East Jerusalem as a malignant tumor in the city. This is how the liberals speak about those Arab neighborhoods, Palestinian neighborhoods of Jerusalem, because they need to separate from them. They, they are dependent. They are, for them, it is an existential issue. If they are not the majority, they cannot dictate anything. They must be, first and foremost, the majority, both in the municipal sense, in the issue of Jerusalem, because otherwise, you know, 
the situation could lead to, you know, in the future to to the situation where there is an, an Arab mayor in the city and certainly in the national level. So they must maintain this majority. Yeah, it's a, you know, hashtag make Jerusalem Jewish again or something along those lines. Yes. Um, uh, okay, so we are almost out of time here, but I want to touch on BDS uh, because I think it's so critical. Uh, it's probably the most potent weapon that we have in terms of fighting against not only the policies of the Israeli state, but some of the very uh, notions underlying the concept of uh, Zionism and exclusivity and all of those things that you were talking about earlier. So uh, tell us a little bit about the current state of BDS. I'm, I think that we can probably assume that most people listening to us have some background in what the boycott divestment sanctions movement is all about and why the uh, boycott of Israel internationally is is so important and gaining so much momentum. But what is the current state now? We've seen uh, repressive legislation circulated throughout the United States and in individual states about uh, uh, BDS and how you're not allowed to talk about it on college campuses and all of these other things, trying to classify it as hate speech and so forth. I know BDS has run into a lot of um, uh, opposition and obstacles, both institutional and otherwise, in places in Europe. I know you're based in Germany, uh, at least currently. So um, what is the situation of BDS, uh, both in terms of Israel and the Boycott from Within movement and organization, and especially internationally today? Mm-hmm. So uh, in July 2005, uh, the, uh, the Palestinian, Palestinian-led BDS campaign uh, came into being and uh, was issued. And uh, since then, uh, I would say that this has grown into a global movement that's spearheading uh, the Palestinian struggle, but possibly even more than that. Uh, it became pretty much a global awareness movement. Um, in analogy to the uh, campaign against apartheid in South Africa at the time. Uh, and, and, you know, after in the South African case, it took roughly 30 years of campaigning until eventually the BDS uh, campaign became mainstream and all countries of the world eventually uh, were boycotting South Africa other than two, Israel and the US, which were very good friends of Israel, of uh, South Africa. Um, Israel was also arming South Africa to its teeth and uh, Nobel Prize laureate and uh, arms dealer and so on, Shimon Peres also tried to sell nuclear weapons to South Africa at the time. Anyhow, um, it became it became mainstream uh, the boycott of South Africa, and uh, it became this awareness movement around the world. And we are seeing pretty much the same phenomena happening these days uh, around the world with regard to the Palestinian-led BDS campaign. Uh, so, first of all, I'm very happy that I have the opportunity to take part in that, uh, both as a human being who cares about such values as equality and freedom and justice, and especially so because I happen to be born uh, into a situation where I am uh, the privileged person in that uh, barbaric uh, system uh, that that is all about giving privileges to me at the expense of the others. So, um, you know, so with 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 privilege also comes responsibility. So I see. Um, so I, I'm very happy that I can uh, basically 
speak up as uh, an Israeli dissident to oppose pretty much everything that Israel stands for. Uh, and um, like me, there are also a few others. We're not, it's not about the numbers. I mean, there's not so many conscientious Israelis who uh, uh, support BDS these days, but, you know, these numbers are also growing, uh, you know, small, they're small, but, you know, they're growing. And uh, the more that Israel exposes its true nature, the more that people around the world and also some Israelis are compelled to to rethink where they stand about it, and uh, and we see the, we see this uh, growth, tremendous growth in the BDS campaign, also uh, with our successes around it. I mean, the the list of successes is really uh, too long to count. Uh, I will just mention uh, that um, the Socialist International. Uh, uh, adopted, for example, uh, the BDS uh, campaign or uh, had some BDS resolution, resolution quite recently. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, basically, um, you know, an international that is uh, that is representing uh, quite a few uh, leftist uh, parties around the world. Uh, so, so this is, you know, when, when you have something like that, that is basically a... A, a decision by a, a global body or a representative body coming from from a whole region and so on uh, endorsing BDS and there are as I mentioned there are many other such examples that I could give this is very very reassuring because uh, we have we, we are moving we're transitioning I think uh, from those successes that are a very a local in a way uh, to to successes that are basically countrywide and beyond that, uh, and and um, and this is very helpful. The, another clear sign of uh, the success of the BDS campaign is obviously uh, looking at Israeli media. Uh, they don't want to report it. They are trying as much as they can not to report it, but they have. But they are talking about BDS all the time. Obviously, in a very negative way. Um, totally misrepresenting it. There is actually no discussion whatsoever, uh, no serious discussion about the BDS campaign. Uh, there's only defamation about it. But but they they talk about it all the time. They legislate laws against it, both inside Israel and abroad. As you know, in the U.S., there's many states that are trying to legislate uh, against BDS, saying that this is some sort of hate speech or anti-Semitism or anything like that. And I see these as actually positive signs because just like I mentioned before, Israel. And whoever is affiliated or complicit in its crimes, uh, all they have in their on their side is uh, force and more force. And and legislating such laws, such McCarthyistic laws, this is basically brute force. They are just trying to silence any voice of dissent, any voice of conscience. And what we have to do is just to speak up. Uh, you know, we have to watch ourselves, we have to, to be smart about it, but what we have to do is simply to speak up, and they are, by legislating such outrageous laws, they are proving the point. Netanyahu is, is proving the point very well why Israel needs to be boycotted and sanctioned. That's a, I, absolutely, <laughs> that's absolutely true. And, and, and when we talk about um, uh, here in Germany, um, I am actually, along with uh, two other colleagues, one is another Israeli activist, another is uh, a dear friend and activist from Gaza, and we will be taken to court soon uh, for disrupting uh, an Israeli representative of the Israeli parliament, 
who came to speak here in Humboldt University in uh, Berlin. Uh, and there is a whole statement that we published later about why we did so, and it's called Speaking Up in Times of Apartheid. Uh, and uh, we refer to the uh, UN report that accuses Israel of the crime of apartheid, which basically, which by the way, Israel practices apartheid throughout the territory under its control and beyond. It is not apartheid, which is a very serious crime under international law, is not only limited to the uh, West Bank and Gaza, it's also throughout the state of Israel and also. Uh, according to legal scholars Tillian Falk, uh, it also applies to those Palestinian mm -hmm. refugees who are living under the direct consequence of Israeli apartheid. So, so basically, you know, when we go and confront such a representative of that criminal apartheid parliament, and especially she came specifically to, sp to speak against BDS, and she's leading the anti-BDS lobby in the parliament, etc. Uh, and the reason, the fact that they are taking us to court. It's simply because they could not treat us like Ahed. They could not put us in prison, in a military prison with no trial or with like a sham trial. So, so they, so they are doing whatever they can. But it is, it is because we are basically uh, virtually slapping the face of Israel by 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 disrupting this representative from the parliament and saying, no, you are not a legitimate representative. You are representing criminal apartheid state, a pariah state. We are not accepting the fact that the university here lends legitimacy to these crimes. If anything, if there is anything to be learned from Humboldt University and from the, uh, the history of uh, uh, whatever has been happening here in Berlin not too long ago, is not to lend a hand to uh, crimes against humanity, not to lend a hand to, to a state that is based on the notion of that some people are better than others, that there are superhumans and subhumans. This is exactly what we should be opposing. Now, and that's exactly, and and, and so, that's exactly so, what created the Holocaust, which supposedly lends legitimacy to the nation of Israel in the first place. It's an incredibly hypocritical mental gymnastics that these bastards have to go through in order to justify their unbelievably criminal and barbaric uh, oppression. Exactly, and I will give just one more example. Um, you may have heard of another law that's in the making, which is a law in Israel that they are currently legislating uh, that it will be illegal to uh, film soldiers on duty. And uh, those who film and the media that will report that footage may end up in for five years in jail. And if this was done to harm state security, this could uh, be up to 10 years in jail. Um, now, this law is a direct response to a small act of solidarity that we did uh, a few months ago when the Gazans uh, started the Great March of Return, um, basically demonstrating not only against occupation of 67 as uh, liberal Zionist media tries to report, uh, but actually by the name it implies the March of Return. It is Gazans who are living in this open-air prison. Uh, over 80% of them are refugees coming from the surrounding area, including Yaffa and Beersheba and so on. And they obviously not only want to end the military occupation and live a decent life, they want to go home and they have a right to do so. Uh, now, when they were demonstrating uh, there in the Gaza ghetto, uh, they were basically uh, massacred. They were uh, shot by snipers, by Israeli snipers. Uh, and on that day when we were demonstrating, it was the first Friday uh, when they were there, uh, we went to have some solidarity action on the other side of the fence of the ghetto. 
and we were just a, f- a handful of people uh, with cameras, with phones. And uh, um, I told one of the soldiers that actually um, I called him by names and I said that he's like uh, those who maintained the siege of the Warsaw Ghetto at the time. Uh, it is talking about symbolism. The Great March of Return started on Passover Eve, uh, which is exactly when um, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising started on Passover Eve many decades ago. Uh, so there, there are all these kind of, you know, lines of uh, interaction and um, similarities. So, so there was this video. There was another video where a fellow activist uh, she called uh, the soldiers terrorists, and, uh, and and on that day they uh, murdered uh, nine or ten people who were demonstrating there in Gaza. So that video, when she was calling them terrorists, that went viral in Israeli media. Uh, there was a response from Netanyahu, the prime minister. There was a response from uh, Lieberman, the minister of defense, uh, and and eventually they ended up legislating a law. And this is what is happening uh, as we speak: that they are legislating this law, saying that we are not allowed to film soldiers uh, during action. Uh, And that is, again, a very good sign. Obviously, it means the consequences are horrible, you know, that that, uh, filming soldiers who do these horrible things could land people in prison for years. But this is a very good sign because Israel is, is shedding whatever is left of this democratic facade is, you know, it is the mask is off by now and they are showing their true face. And this is a very important issue. It wouldn't have happened if we didn't film the soldiers and call them terrorists. It wouldn't have happened if I didn't slap the soldier in the face. It wouldn't have happened if I would not disrupt that criminal apartheid representative in Humboldt University in Berlin. There is a need to, to speak up and to expose Israel for what it is. And by doing that, it responds. And the only way that it knows how to respond only proves the point and only convinces the world of how just uh, the struggle is and how there is no more room for basically sitting on the fence. I th- People have to decide which side they're on, whether they are... Uh, with Zionism or with humanism, whether they are for equality, freedom and justice or against it. It's as simple as that. I think that's very beautifully said. And um, I just want to take this opportunity to commend you on all of the work that you do uh, on your activism. It's it's incredibly courageous considering the uh, forces that are arrayed against you. I have no doubt the kind of abuse and uh, uh, uh I'm sure worse than just abuse that you get from uh, Israeli state and probably from people that you've known in your life and so forth. I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage, but of course it takes even more courage to be uh, a Palestinian uh, facing those kind of odds and standing in resistance to that. And so I want to commend you. Of course, I commend all of the uh, Palestinian uh, resistance fighters and and many others that you have worked with and that uh, remain nameless here on this program. But um, it's very 
very, very important. It has a special place in my heart as well as uh, as somebody of Jewish background growing up in the United States and who also had to unlearn a lot of Zionist propaganda and who also had to kind of come to terms with uh, what I was uh, raised to believe versus what is the actual reality in this world. So, uh, Ronnie, for raising consciousness and for taking risks and for all of the things that you do, I want to thank you for all of that work. And I want to thank you for coming on the show and helping us to understand the situation in Israel and uh, in Palestine broadly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And this is exactly the way to go with these shows and with the listeners who will hopefully also take action after listening. Uh, we, I'm pretty optimistic that we actually can turn this uh, situation around. Thank you so much. I, I am as well. And thank you listeners for, for tuning in and for your continued support. Please do follow Ronnie and follow uh, BDS uh, well, Boycott from Within and BDS uh, generally. Ronnie, uh, follow him on Twitter at Ronnie underscore Barkon. Uh, connect with him on Facebook, boycottisrael.info. Ronnie, thanks for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always, and I will chat with you all again real soon. <laughs>